For yet, even when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. God committed his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If Jesus and our Heavenly Father loved us that much when we were lost in sin, how much more special is it now as his children who call him Abba Father? It is truly special to be here this morning with you and to assemble, as we just sang that beautiful hymn, to assemble together as the redeemed of God, the called out people of God. And it is truly just a blessing to be able to worship Him this morning, to have His Word, to have this pattern to follow so we can worship Him in spirit and in truth. And I just appreciate everybody that's here and appreciate the opportunity, the privilege to stand before you this morning. I do want to say a word to to Brother Ken Busby. That was captivating and that was beautiful this morning. Uh, To think about the, the, the soldier and that tomb and something that he said really triggered a thought. He said, you know, this... This soldier is unknown to the world, only known to God. You think about Jesus, who is not only known to God, but in the bosom of the Father and left heaven and came here. But he's not unknown to the world. He's known to the world. He died for the world. And that we have the privilege as God's people to make him known to the world by the way we live our lives. So just a wonderful opportunity to be able to worship here this morning. The songs we've been able to sing, the prayers that have been offered, the scriptures we've been able to read from Ephesians 3. And to think about God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Brethren, we ought to be excited to be here and to be thankful to be God's people. This morning we continue our study of the book of 1 John. Last week we dove into chapter 1, and so we're going to go straight into chapter 2. If you weren't with us last week, uh, we encourage you to go to our YouTube channel. You can find that, and, and hopefully that will help as you study. But I issued a challenge last week, and I want to issue it again, and that is to read through the book of 1 John every week from now until the end of the year. Five chapters in the book, read chapter 1 on Monday, chapter 2 Tuesday, so on and so forth, that we can all read through this together and hopefully increase our knowledge and understanding. Uh, And so hopefully you've already read through chapter 2 at least once, uh, and now we can dive in it together. So without further ado, let's dive straight in to 1 John chapter 2, and I want to begin this morning with this uh, sermon title, and it's really a two-part title, which is kind of unique to do, but I think it fits in the text. First, we're going to think about the responsibility that we have as Christians to submit to God, and then the second part of this sermon, we're going to think about the responsibility we have to reject sin, and both of those thoughts go hand in hand, don't they? Submit to God, reject sin. I can't do one without the other, because if I don't do that, you know what I'm doing? I'm rejecting God and submitting to sin, and I don't want to do that. I want to make sure that I'm being who God wants me to be. So as we begin thinking about our responsibility to submit to God, let's begin with this beautiful thought that we have representation in heaven. We have representation. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. First, let's think about the aim. What is our aim? And John clearly says it. I write to you that you may not sin. We need to be reminded That that is our goal. I don't need to wake up in the morning and say, well, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to sin today. 
That does not need to be my mentality. My mentality needs to be, I'm going to fight temptation with everything I've got. I don't want to sin against God. I don't want to hurt my God. Jesus bled and died for me. I don't want to sin. Are we going to make mistakes? Are we going to mess up? Are we going to sin? Yes, from time to time we will. But my mindset needs to be, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to fight it with everything that I've got. That is the aim that John is emphasizing. I write to you that you may not sin. If sin is something I'm doing every single day, I need to get out of the sinning business. I need to meet it head on. I need to fight it. Be courageous. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7. We can fight it with his word. Psalm 119.11. That's our aim. And these passages just support that thought. You remember the brethren in Rome? What was their problem? Shall we continue in sin that, may, that grace may abound? Paul said, God forbid. How shall we listen to him who died to sin live any longer in it? I need to live for righteousness, not for unrighteousness. And so I need to make sure that my aim stays intact. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, mortify, put to death all these members of uncleanliness. Why? Because you've put off the old man and you are to put on the new man created in Christ Jesus unto righteousness and holiness. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 teaches us what sin is. Sin is a transgression of God's law. It means to miss the mark. So if you have a target and you're trying to hit that target and you miss it, that's the idea here. God has the perfect standard. He has the target that has been set. And when you and I miss that target, that's sin. So my aim needs to be, let's hit the target. Let's live in harmony with what God has revealed. And of course, 1 John 3, 8 and 9, if we're the children of God, we're not going to live in sin because we've been born of God. And that's a sign of that. I've changed and there's been a change. I don't live in sin. I live for God. I make mistakes. Yes, I mess up, but I handle it God's way. See 1 John chapter 1. So he says, my little children, this is your aim. But if you do sin, look, look at what he says. If you do sin. So John recognized something, didn't he? Go back to chapter 1, 8, and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we lie and deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So we know we're going to mess up. So the word if there really means when you do. Here's your goal. Your aim is not to sin. But when you do mess up, John says, we have an advocate with the Father. It is Jesus Christ the righteous. This word advocate is a very, very interesting word. And I want you to think about this from a legal perspective. When you see the word advocate, we're really looking at the word lawyer. Picture yourself in a courtroom setting and picture yourself standing before the judge. Are you guilty of sin? Am I guilty of sin? Absolutely. And I stand before the judge and I've got nothing. But you know who comes to my aid? You know who's at my right hand? You know who my counselor is? It's Jesus Christ the righteous. He stands before me and he says, this child is covered in my blood. He goes to the Father on my behalf. Think about that for a second. Jesus goes to bat for you, our advocate. The NIV of 1984 used this word counselor to think about one who speaks to the Father in our defense. So again, think of this in legal terms. 
Our aim is not to sin, but if and when we do, we have an advocate. We have got representation before the judgment seat, if you will, of God. And it's Jesus himself who does that for us. So thinking about the word advocate, it's the word comforter. Same exact word that was used for the Holy Spirit. But here's the difference. In the book of John, every time the word paraclete is found, it's in reference to the Holy Spirit. But in the book of 1 John, the word paraclete is actually emphasizing the work of Jesus Christ. So who is our comforter today? Our comforter is Jesus. For the apostles, who was the comforter to guide them into all truth? Well, it was the Holy Spirit of God. But my comforter and your comforter, the one who pleads my case, is none other than Jesus Christ. The same one that died for me is the same one who stands in front of me. That's amazing, isn't it? He's our advocate. Our advocate, a lawyer. The word paraclete, if you break this word down, para means beside. Clete, of course, a form of kaleo means to call. To call beside. Think of that word picture. You're standing on your own. You've got nothing but Jesus to be called beside, to stand right there with you. Remember what Paul said? My first offense, no man stood with me, but the Lord was with me. That's the same concept here when it comes to when we mess up. Those are the references in the book of John where this word is used. Again, for the Holy Spirit, therefore the apostles. Remember, Jesus had to leave. He said, I'm leaving, but another comforter is coming, who the Father will send in my name. He will be with you. He will remind you of things I said. He will guide you into all truth. The apostles had that. What do we have today? We've got the comfort of Jesus. Something that really stood out in the the scripture reading, Ephesians 3, 17. The love of Christ being in you. Christ dwelling in you. How does Christ dwell in us today? Well, the the sister passage, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's how it happens. I've got the word of God right here. I've got the love of God right here. It needs to dwell inside of me. And motivate me to live for Him. And so here is the aim. The aim, do not sin. But if and when you do, you have an advocate. You have one who is there. You have the Prince of Peace. You have the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the great counselor, Isaiah said, Isaiah 9, 6. Your representation. But then the same one, again, who stands right beside us is the one who died for us. We think about the word atonement. Look at that word. At one meant with God. I can be at one with God because of what Jesus did for me on the cross reconciliation that word reconcile means to be brought back jesus has that power and that ability to grab you and bring you out of the muck and the mire and bring you back to god only through his blood could that happen he himself is the propitiation for our sins we don't use that word very often do we propitiation found three times in the new testament twice in first john once in the book of romans what does it mean it carries the idea of the appeasing sacrifice In other words, this appeases the wrath of God. God hates sin. It stirs up His wrath. But by Jesus dying on the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. The appeasing sacrifice is what this word means. He Himself is the appeasing sacrifice for our sins. A one-time payment paid in full. Blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, Hebrews 10.4. But the one-time sacrifice of Jesus took away all sin for all time. The Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, John 1.29. We don't need another sacrifice. We've got the greatest sacrifice right there. 
He tasted death for every man. Hebrews 2.9. Now this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. So in the first two verses of chapter 2, you can see the impact of what John is saying. The one who pleads our case like a lawyer. It's the same one who died for us on the cross. Oh, how I love Jesus. I need to love him more and more when I really stop and think about all that not only what he's done for me in the past, what he continues to do for me as I live from day to day. And so that's how John begins this chapter. In the second place, let's think about this word confirmation. Confirmation. We talked last week about knowing whether or not we're Christians, knowing whether or not we're walking in the light, if we're, we're living the way God would have us to live. John's really going to get at it when you think about what is said here in verses 3 through 6. He says, now th- by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Confirmation. I can know that I'm a child of God. I can know that I know him. How many people in our world today say, I know God. I know Jesus. How many athletes do we hear at the end of the game? Jesus, my personal Lord and Savior. I hope that's the case. I truly do. And I have no idea that person's heart. I hope and, hope and pray that person's obeyed the gospel. But how easy is it to say, I know God, and yet not know Him at all? John says, he who says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. So if I say, I know God, that comes with a condition, doesn't it? If I say, I know God, I've got to meet this condition, and John makes it very plain, if we keep His commandments. If I don't keep His commandments, I don't know Him. And you know what I'm going to hear on the Day of Judgment? Depart from me, I never knew you. Matthew chapter 7. I've got to know him. How can I do it if I keep his commandments? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to Jesus on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these wonderful works in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Depart from me. I don't don't know who you are. You might have said you were doing that in my name, but you never obey what I said. So there's the condition. If I want to make sure I have confirmation, I've got to meet the condition. Because if not, what I have is a contradiction. A contradiction. I know him, but I'm not going to do what he says. Titus chapter 1 and verse 16. They appear to be godly, but in their works, they deny him. I've got, got to guard against that, don't I? I've got to be careful. I know who God is. I'm a Christian. Well, what what does my life say about that? What do my works say about that? Are they in line with what God says to do? Because if not, there's a contradiction there. Matthew 7, again, 22 through 24, emphasizes that contradiction. But in verses 5 and 6, what we have is a culmination. The word culmination means you, you put it all together. You're building up to something. What is John building up to here? Well, he says, number one, you can have affirmation from him. Affirmation from him. Whoever keeps his word true, the love of God is perfected in him. And so we have God's love for us. We've already read about, studied about 
this morning, but this is emphasizing our love for God. Did you know that the more you read the Word of God, the more you'll fall in love with Him? And the more you strive to do what God would have you to do, the more that you'll love the fact that He did this for me. He left me this to read and to study and meditate on and to follow and to teach. My love will increase and I'll draw closer to Him the more I spend time in this right here. But the more time I spend in the world, I'm going to draw closer to the world and farther away from God. And I've got to make sure that I'm doing what He would have me to do. Think about 1 John 5, 3. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not grievous. This is what God desires for us. And so we have affirmation from Him. Second, we can abide in Him. He who says he abides in Him but actually walks in darkness, well, he's not abiding in him at all. So what is the culmination of all this together? I've got legal representation at the right hand of God. It's Jesus Christ, same one who died for me. I'm going to try not to sin, but when I do, I know that he's going to come to my aid if I handle sin the right way, 1 John 1, 7 through 9. And then I can have confirmation that I am his child, that I'm a child of God, that I'm living the way I'd have to live if I meet the condition. And so piece all this together, the affirmation from him, I can abide in him, but then I need to act like him. I need to act like him. Notice what he says. He ought himself to walk just as he walked. If I say that I am in Christ and I am abiding in Christ, my life needs to reflect that. Because I can say all day long, I'm in Christ and I'm a Christian, but my actions need to back that up. I need to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, James 1.22. So John is, is really emphasizing who we are as Christians. Again, under this heading, responsibility is submit to God. I need to submit to God because I have that representation. Submit to God and, and know and have this confirmation. But then let's look at this word adoration as we come to verses 7 through 11. Adoration. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What a word picture. He's in darkness right now. And instead of navigating out of darkness to the light, he continues to be. He's walking in it. He's being overtaken by darkness. He's blinded. With what? A lack of of love for his brethren. If I don't love my brothers and sisters in Christ the way the Bible speaks, I'm not walking in light. I'm walking in darkness. And I need to make that change. That's what John is emphasizing. The word adoration, we sing the song sometimes, sweet adoration, adore, love, venerate. It's this idea of how we are just, we're loving to the highest degree. Brother Clint's emphasized this and some others as well. Our spiritual family is the most important family in our life. 
Is that to say that my physical family is not important to me? Of course not. But my spiritual family, that's my real true family. Because your physical family will let you down from time to time. They'll let you down. But your spiritual family, those are the ones who are there to pick you up when you fall. To bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6. John is really emphasizing here about the love that we are to have for one another. John chapter 13, 34 and 35, Jesus uses the same language, doesn't he? He said, it's not a new commandment. It's new in the sense that you need to live it out. But you've known this from the beginning, that you love one another. Later in 1 John chapter 3, we'll get to next week, Lord willing, he, he talks about the example of Cain. He says, you love your brother not as Cain. What a contrast. Look at what Cain did to Abel. He said, that no, the total opposite of that is what needs to be taking place. The kind of love that we are to have for one another. Let brotherly love continue, Hebrews 13, 1. But now look at this. Love one another is not a new decree, but Jesus emphasizes a new degree. How much am I to love my brother and sister in Christ? As I have loved you. Brother Zach just read that passage for us in Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. How much does Jesus love you? How much does Jesus love me? Paul says we can know the width and the depth and the height. Then he says this, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. You ever thought about that? How can I know something that passes knowledge? I can know that Jesus loves me so much I can't even fathom how much it is. Maybe you've seen the picture before of Jesus on the cross. He says, I love you this much. That's just the product of the love he's had for us all along. He loved us while we were in darkness. He loved us when we hated him. How much more as his people, as the sheep that hear his voice and follow him, the love that Jesus has for us, that same love that he has for me, I need to reflect that love to my brethren. John says, it's not a new commandment, but there's a new degree here. This is one of the marks of a Christian. 1 Peter 1.22, you've purified your soul, how? By obeying the truth unto what? What is that sign? You've obeyed the truth. What is different now about you? Unto, look at him, sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Fervently. That's the kind of love that we are to have for one another. And so love then is both a condition and a demonstration of our salvation. A condition and a demonstration. It reveals, as John says here, whether I'm walking in the light or if I'm walking in darkness. There's your test. I know him if I keep his commandments. I know I'm in the light if I'm loving my brethren. But if I'm not keeping his commandments and I'm not showing love for my brethren, I am in darkness. And that is John's main point in both sections. So adoration. As we continue to move forward in this chapter, let's notice the word conviction, verses 12 through 14. This is a really interesting section. But think of this word conviction as we read it. He says, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven. You for his name's sake. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the father. 
I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him as from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do you think John knew his audience? You think John loved these people? Look at how tender. He could have just had a, a blanket statement, but he specifies certain individuals, doesn't he? Fathers, little children, young men. That's special. That's a special bond. And what, it, what he's about to say is to encourage them to have conviction. First, he says to little children, your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Have conviction. Have conviction. Be convicted of this. Know this. Your sins are forgiven. And you have known the Father. You can know these things. You can have conviction. Then he writes to fathers, those who are more mature in the faith. You have known him who is from the beginning. And he says that twice, which I find is pretty interesting. He reemphasizes it. You've known him who is from the beginning. You should have conviction as you live from day to day. And then to the young men, look at how encouraging. You have overcome the wicked one. You've been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And he says, you are strong and the word of God abides in you. That's a great, great encouragement, isn't it? Could you imagine reading that? You are strong. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And the word of God abides in you. We've already talked about Colossians 3.16. But think about Psalm 119.11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. John is emphasizing in all these sections that we've studied thus far, the responsibility to submit to God. With the time we have remaining, we're going to switch gears and think about our responsibility to reject sin. So submit to God, reject sin. Here we come to probably the most famous, if I can use that word famous, most well-known section in this chapter. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John has been talking about loving God, loving your brethren, but now he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. When you think of this statement, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, that is how Satan operates. And he's good at it. He's been doing it a really long time. Because when you go back to the Garden of Eden, is that not exactly what happened? Is that not the exact formula? Satan wanted Eve to doubt God. That was his first step. Did God really say not to eat? Did he really say that? Do we not do the same thing today? Can I, can I really not have that one drink? That one drink's not going to hurt anything. It's just one can I really not go see that movie? Can I really not click on this? Did he really say I couldn't? We do the same thing, brethren. But here Eve gave in to those avenues. She saw that the food, it was good. She saw it. She had a lust for that. And then it was willing to make one wise. There's the pride of life. Didn't Satan use the same tactics with Jesus too, Matthew chapter 4? Turn these stones into bread. 
Jump from this mountaintop. The angels will bear you up. So Satan operates this way. And this is how we're tempted today as well. So I have a responsibility as a Christian to reject sin. I'm in the world, but I must not be of the world. I need to be different from the world. I need to make sure that the world is not living in me, even though I live in the world. When you think of these two passages in the New Testament that, that, that piece this together, look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I'm begging you, I'm on the knees begging you, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God. He says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed. Be transformed. That's my responsibility as a Christian. I've got to reject sin at all costs. And then think about what Jesus said. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He's talking about our perspective. He's talking about what we hold dear. What is most valuable to us? Does this world mean more to me than the kingdom of God? If it does, I need to, I need to make some changes. In Matthew chapter 6, and verse 24, he said, No man can serve two masters. You'll love the one, you'll hate the other. You Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. You cannot... Serve God and money. You can't do it. I cannot have one foot in the world and one foot in the church and be pleasing to God. I've got to come out from it. And If I make the decision I'm going to live for God, I need to do it. Be a man. Be a woman of my word. Have that conviction that John just wrote to them about. But understand my responsibility to reject the world. Reject sin. Love what God loves and hate what God hates. As we start to bring this down to a close, we come to the last section in the chapter. Here's our motivation. And this really serves not only as our last point, but kind of some application for us as well. Why should I be motivated to submit to God? Why should I be motivated to reject sin? After all, sin is pleasurable. Hebrews chapter 11, 25. Satan makes it look so good. All these people out in the world who are living in sin, they have no problems. Look at all the money. Look at all the things they have. But I've got a mansion over the hilltop. Don't think me poor or deserted or lonely. I'm heaven bound. Do we believe those words that we sang earlier? When you come to the end of this, again, he says, little children. It's almost a way of, of bringing them back in. What he just said was very hard, I'm sure, to hear. Don't love the world. Don't do these things. But then he says, little children. He's bringing them back together. He said, it is the last hour. Meaning this is the last dispensation of time. This is the Christian dispensation that we are living in. There's not going to be another age that comes, in other words. There's the patriarchal age. There's the mosaical age. There's the Christian age. And guess what? From now until Jesus comes back, that's it. Are we in the last days? Yeah, we are. We've been in the last days for a long time. Until Jesus comes back, and that's going to be it. We are in the last time. It is the last hour. But then I want you to notice in verse 22, the religious world seems to, to gloss over this. He says, little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Wait a minute, the world says we're waiting on that one political leader to come and, and to have barcodes on everybody's forehead and all these different things that we hear. 
John said in the first century there were many of them. Not just one political leader that's coming. Oh, this, this might be the end. There were already many of them. Look at verse 22. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Not some kind of beast or some kind of figure. Anybody that says, I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. John said, that's an Antichrist. I'm against him. I'm against Christ. So don't get caught up in what the religious world tries to teach about the Antichrist and the mystic view about this. John says there were already many of them in the first century. There are many of them who had this idea that they knew better than everybody else. Remember the Gnostics, 1 John chapter 1? They had this superior knowledge. Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. He was kind of an apparition. Well, he's talking about those Gnostics and those in the first century who are denying that Jesus did come in the flesh. So you have this motivation for us. Look at this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Man, that's, that's powerful language. At one point in time, they were right there with us, John says. The apostles, they were right there with us. We're, we're all following the same thing, but now they've gone out and, and they've gotten too smart. They've gotten this higher knowledge. We've seen that happen in our own brotherhood, haven't we? Those who at one point in time were standing firm on the truth, and now, oh, but I've learned more. Don't matter how many letters you got after your name, the truth is the truth. They went out from us, but they were not of us. But you know the truth. What's John saying? You be motivated to stick with the truth. It doesn't matter who tries to come in the assembly. It doesn't matter what kind of doctrine they try to bring in. You know the truth, so stick with it. Is there any application for us today with that? We're going to hear all kinds of things floating around the brotherhood, but I need to stick with the truth. I need to make sure I'm seeking the old paths wherein is righteousness and walk therein. So they had miraculous ability in the first century to discern spirits. You can read of the nine spiritual gifts they had, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 through 11. They had wisdom. They had the ability to understand, to speak in different languages. And one of those miraculous ability was to discern the spirits. So John says, you know. And you can read throughout this context what John is emphasizing. They're bringing this doctrine, but you know better than that. They had a miraculous ability. Well, what about us today? I don't have a miraculous ability. Somebody comes in and teaches something that's erroneous. I can't say, no, that's wrong. God just told me that was wrong. But you know what I can do? God told me that was wrong. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How? Because it's been revealed. So I need to stand firm on the word. If somebody preaches something that's not consistent with this right here, I need to reject it. And I want everybody in this audience to understand something. If I ever say anything that is inconsistent with this, do not listen to it. If it agrees with the Bible, accept it. If not, reject it. Let's hold to that. Let's hold to that. We have the Word of God as our standard. I need to be motivated then to not get caught up in all the things that are going on. Just like in the first century with all the different doctrines, I need to remember that to deny the Son is to deny the Father. And so they were to be motivated to reject what the false teachers were promoting and stick to the truth that they knew and the truth that they had obeyed. Finally, as we come to the home stretch in this section, verses 24 through 29, John essentially says, you let the word of truth abide in you. Don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. Just like Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, 
Don't deviate from what God has revealed. Don't try to do it your own way. Don't try to think, well, this is too simple. There's got to be more than that. Embrace the simplicity and the beauty of God's truth. Don't try to change what's already perfect. Therefore, he says, abide. Present tense. Keep on abiding in the Son. And this is the promise that we have. Eternal life. There is no greater motivation to live a godly life and to know that one day if I do that, I'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. If that's not my motivation, I need to make changes. If it's so I can look good to the world, if it's so I can please my, my family, then my heart's not really in it. I need to be motivated for the right reason. And John says, you stay the course because this is the promise he promised us, even eternal life. And God who cannot lie has promised us that. So here's what he says as you close out this chapter. He says, abide in him. Abide in him and have confidence. Abide in him and do not be ashamed. There's no reason to be ashamed if you abide in him. And finally, abide in him and practice, practice righteousness. Let's read this as we close out this morning. Verses 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. What do we find in, in Psalm 119, 172? All your commandments are righteousness. So if I keep the commandments of God and I'm living in the right way, would that not mean I was righteous before God? But also I need to understand there is no righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. If he didn't die for me on the cross, it doesn't matter what I try to do, I'd be lost. So let's bring it together. We have a great responsibility to submit to God and reject sin. That's 1 John chapter 2. We have the confirmation if we keep on doing what he says. We enjoy sweet adoration as the family of God, but we must maintain our conviction as we live from day to day. We are to reject the evil of this world, the false teaching, and anything opposed to God, and we ought to be motivated to live for God now, knowing that He has promised that we, if we keep on many of the conditions, will live with Him forever. And that is 1 John chapter 2, and I truly hope that's something that helps you in your personal study, but I hope we've been encouraged this morning. To know that I need, as an individual, I need to submit to God and I need to reject sin with everything I've got because heaven will surely be worth it all. This morning, if you're not a Christian, why not have this confirmation? Why not have the conviction? Why not obey the gospel today? Have all of your sins washed away, be added to the one true church, rise out of that watery grave and walk in newness of life. It begins with faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. You must believe and be able to act on what you believe. Put your faith into action. And included in that is repentance. Change your mind, change your life. Godly sorrow that works repentance leading unto salvation. Confess with the mouth, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And then be baptized into Christ. Have all your sins washed away. Rise to walk in newness of life and be faithful unto even in the face of death and you'll receive the crown of life. 
It may be that as a child of God, you think about what we've talked about and you say, you know what, I have not been submitting to God. I've been loving the world more than God. I haven't been rejecting sin. In fact, I'm struggling with sin horribly this morning. And I understand I need to repent and I need to make changes. If that describes you, we could love to pray with you and pray for you. But let's make sure when we leave here today that we have the conviction, that we have this confirmation. We are children of God. Let's live like it. If you need to respond, won't you come? As together we stand and sing.